Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day, and I'm so excited about this week's episode because I had the opportunity to speak with Dave Gibbons, visionary leader and founding pastor of New Song Church in Santa Ana, California. Now, Dave is a brilliant Christ follower. He's a creative futurist, activist, and strategist. He's the founder of Zealots, a group specifically aimed at helping creatives and entrepreneurs, activists, innovators, um, artists, uh, to help them all discover their destiny and equip them to live out that destiny. He's written three books, Small Cloud Rising, The Monkey and the Fish, and Zealots, and he speaks regularly to leaders around the world. Now, in this week's episode, Dave shares with us life-transforming insights he learned through a desert experience in his life in ministry. He also speaks about the value and importance of creativity, and Dave touches on some unconventional yet incredibly effective strategies for reaching communities with the hope of Jesus. So you might want to be prepared to take some notes this week as we jump into my conversation with Dave Gibbons. Well, I just want to welcome you, Dave Gibbons, to our Church Leaders Podcast. It's a joy to have you with us, and we're excited to hear from your heart today. Oh, man, it's great to be with you and the listeners. Dave, when I first met you, you were speaking to a group of of ministry leaders and talking about leadership, and and the way you spoke about it was in a different way. You were talking about ministry leadership that was truly spirit-led. In a world where ministry leaders are are blasted and and inundated with leadership principles from many angles, but not necessarily the spiritual element of leadership. I was wondering, could you um, speak a little bit about how you view leadership and strategy and leadership development? Yeah, well, that's a great question. It's a big topic. For me, I early on developed a model of efficiency. That's how I was trained, just to develop people in the most effective way, the quickest. And also the target was like the, the biggest amount of people possible, move them through the process. And so as our church grew and as we did multi-sites and the whole gamut, I realized, man, it's just, it's almost like to me, it became my groundhog day. And I, at the end of the day, I didn't know really how effective we were. And while we had massive numbers, uh, the numbers that were, I think maybe God was looking at was necessarily our Sunday attendance or just how many people are in small groups, but actually was the city changing. And, and, and I found that the numbers that maybe were more important to God may be around the number zero. You know, are there zero orphans in the city, zero foster children, zero divorces, zero addictions, zero murders? So maybe it's quite the opposite perspective. And so, I don't know, forced me to rethink how I did leadership development. Uh, and then as I thought about the different layers of what I was trying to do, if you look at like a pyramid structure where the top is core, you know, you're like the three to 12, then you have your community, which is a, the more the mid-size, the people who attend and it's part of your membership, let's say at a church. And then you have the crowd, those who may be disinterested or not attending or they don't know you exist, but basically your city. You know, I, I saw that a lot of my effort was around the community and just nurturing the community, which is good, which is important. 
you know, it's our family. Um, but at the end of the day, I saw that we, again, weren't really addressing maybe the approach that Jesus did, which was he did the big crowds, but it seems like most of his life was given to these conversations where there was these one-on-ones and these small groups. And then in particular, it was his three and 12. And so I said, what would it look like if we actually realigned the allocation of our resources from just focusing primarily on the community to actually focusing upon the core? And then what would it look like personally in my own life? And so that it's not so much about when I'm developing people, they're going to try to come and build my vision. But what if it was the opposite, where the vision of the church was that we were to help people find their vision and do everything we could to equip them to fulfill the destiny that God's called them to outside the box. And so that drove me over the last 10 years to really revamping our whole systems, our metrics, our philosophy, the way we staff. I mean, almost everything we did, even how we assess and then what we use assessments for. Wow. Now, so that's I, pretty much like a yeah, general overview. That, that's, that's great. And it sounds like um, that, that would have had to have been a pretty big shift. I mean, you, you've been doing ministry yeah. in, in a certain way, right, a specific way. And all those people who have come to be a part of that ministry engaged in that ministry uh, based on, you know, how, how, you were, how you were doing ministry. And so then you have this yeah. this shift. So can you talk to us a little bit mm-hmm. about how you how you navigated that that shift? Well, somewhat blindly, to be honest, because <laughs> uh, I, I I really didn't know if I had any models for it. I just knew what I was doing was not maybe to me. To be honest, I didn't know it was really the heart of God, um, and so I was really concerned. And you know, as you get older, you there's an urgency to your life and also you are more focused upon what's maybe important and you don't maybe care about criticism as much, even though it can still hurt. Right. So I didn't want to go to my grave someday where I didn't do what I believe was really right and true. So that process actually was so difficult because um, it was almost like a dying of self. I, I remember I was in Thailand actually when I was kind of, rethinking everything 10 years ago and one of our young leaders from thailand he had he was very intimate with the lord and you know he's very introverted in a lot of ways and careful with his words but one of the things he said to me that took me by surprise is he says you know new song which is our church he says you know new song has to die and i had no idea what he's talking about at first it was kind of offensive but then you know i took it to prayer and as I thought about it, I go, you know, maybe it's like, kind of like that idea where we need a new wine skin. You know, old wine's the most valuable wine's great, but there's also like new wine that's coming that needs new forms. And maybe it's not that the vision and values are necessarily wrong and our beliefs, those stay consistent, but maybe it's the way we've been doing things and how we communicate it and what our metrics are that needs to be deeply reexamined. And so that process of reexamination over the last 10 years, you know, we lost people, we had to realign staff, we moved places to align to our vision. Um, But yeah, it was literally a dying, I think, not only from a personal perspective, but also from a church perspective. Wow. In that, you know, going through that process of really, you know, dying 
and um, then then almost this uh, a rebirth into to where God was leading you. How did you personally handle some of those transitions that were taking place? I mean, you mentioned you know some people were leaving. You know, you were looking at a new way of of doing ministry, a new way of developing leaders as as a person. You know, as a pastor, but as a person. Um, how were you kind of handling those those changes? Uh, probably not very well. Um, I think initially I actually didn't want to do it. I, I wanted just to run away because I just knew it was kind of deconstructing everything that we had built up as significant and as successful, which is primarily around numbers and a lot, of, a ton of energy. Again, these are all on bad, but those were our main metrics. And then how many people are engaged on our Sunday services and small groups. But it was, a, it was a tough, tough for me. I think I went to leave and run away because I was afraid of, I think the onslaught of potential criticism and then the negativity that would happen as people looked at us as they would see it as like failing because I saw that we were going to have to, instead of expanding, there was going to be this, uh, declension and 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 that's a really hard thing to know and then actually start to engage in especially when even those who are closest to you sometimes will will wonder about it or don't not quite get it so i think i dealt with wanting to run then there's a prior stage of anger even being upset being defensive and then pretty much i went into like this mode i think eventually where just be faithful that was like 101. I just worked the process, try to figure it out. So I, I went into a research and development laboratory mode. Like I started doing it with my, an organization that I developed to actually R&D stuff because within the existing organization, it wasn't necessarily ready to handle all these new concepts or the testing of it. So I just started a new organization to actually capture that and, and give me a space to innovate without a lot of heat. And so I went into more hidden stage of this development, practicing beta testing it. And so I was just faithful over the years. And then I think the Lord took me probably about four years ago or five years ago. I realized it wasn't just about faithfulness and perseverance through this season, but graduate school was learning to have joy in the middle of like a dying, but also a resurrection that you knew was coming. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like, could I have joy? Yeah, and that was the main thing. Is I, I think I took away that, and then I think in the middle of the desert, the thing that helped me to actually survive and then to thrive in the desert was really the work of the Holy Spirit, where that was foreign to me really in the past beyond theological papers and, and argumentation. But I think as I uh, was in this season, the Holy Spirit became the real elixir to me. And without him guiding me or strengthening me, I, I just probably wouldn't have been able to survive. Wow, that's powerful. And, and, and the idea of the Holy Spirit, you know, being there not only as, as the one who guides us through these times, but even as you said, mm-hmm. um, encouraging and, and empowering mm-hmm. in the midst of, of um, you know, some uncertainties. You know, you, you, as, you've, as you've said, you weren't exactly sure um, how it would all work out, really, and um, but you were just stepping into that faithfulness, and uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life during that time is, is key. What would you say to um, a pastor? I can only imagine, um, you know, the price some 
pastors who are listening today, and and they're probably thinking, you know, I'm going through something something similar. You know, I've been investing my time and my energy faithfully in the church and and seeking to to do what what I sense God calling us to do, and and yet I I feel that God is is leading in a a different way, and it's a way that's going to look much different from how our church presently looks. What encouragement, what advice would you give a pastor who's kind of wrestling through that, you know, sensing that the Spirit is leading in a different direction? Well, first of all, I would say you're on the right path. Uh, We're living today in probably one of the most disruptive moments in history, not only in terms of economically, um, uh, governmentally, uh, nationally, I mean, even spiritually when it comes to how the church looks and how it communicates and what it, what it validates, what it, what it purports. So I'd say you're on the right tracks. So don't be discouraged. Number two, I would say know that this is a process that I didn't get it early on, but there's actually like these, these seasons that you're going through when it comes to innovation and when God's creating something new. You know, I, I, I realize that there's probably about eight or nine stages to this. And so when you're in that desert stage where things are dying, you need to know that he's honing you there and he's giving you something that you're not going to see unless you're in the barrenness, because it's in the desert where the colors are, are obvious. And the, the hues that you didn't see in the lush green are suddenly starkly evident. Uh, so you have to embrace the desert moment. And I think learn it's hard, but ask the Lord to give you his eyes and to give you his joy. It's almost like what Nelson Mandela experienced when he was at Robbins Island, where he and others said it became the Robbins University. And it's like the cesspool can become the garden. And so that's a different place that's really deep, but you can develop that mind and spirit in the desert. And it's forged there. And so embrace the desert and what you're going to learn there, because spring can happen in one day. In one moment, spring's suddenly there, where it could be, winter can be really long, but God determines when spring's going to happen and when the harvest is. And until that moment, just ask God to give you his joy. And things will shift in your spirit. You'll go to another place of maturation. So I would say with that in mind, the third thing is just have hope because the elixir is there in the desert and find that elixir. For me, the elixir was the Holy Spirit. We're learning to engage him more versus just my own strategy and like kind of like Saul's armor that was given to me by wise people, good people, trying to, you know, helpful people. Um, but it wasn't necessarily the the true thing that would satisfy or maybe the true solution that God would have for me in my context. So look for the elixir. What is the elixir God wants to give to you to actually help propel you into that next season of life where you actually start to learn to dance with God, where it's not so much about the future, where a lot of times when you think about the future, you worry um, or you look at the past and you have a ton of regret. He, I think he ultimately, once you get through the desert, he's teaching you how to dance and to fully be present in the moment. And when I look at that stage of life, I think that's where the Z generation, 
the millennials are hungering for leadership that's actually fully present. So it's not only that you're authentic, but I think where we show the transcendent nature and power, beauty of God, it's when we can be fully present with someone and see them and know them and love them without any condition. And I think God is leading us to that dance. That's incredible to think of how God is um, through those, like you said, desert experiences is building into us and is helping us to, to see the, actually the, the beauty of that relationship with God and what that looks like um, as we live our lives out that, you know, inviting us into that dance and, um, you know, to experience to a greater depth, really, who God is and how the Spirit is, is speaking is at work in, in our lives. Um, I think that's great encouragement. Thank you for that, Dave. One thing I want to mention about that, just to encourage uh, those who are listening today, is that there's this continuum of pain that I found that early on, you know, when you're experiencing the pain in the middle of the desert, you just want to kind of cover it up and not deal with it. But eventually, you know, it leads to confession where you're going to want to talk about it. And there's healing found when you start to at least confess it and share it with others. But at some point, there's an embrace of your brokenness or of the, the pain in that moment. Letting God, instead of saying, God, take away the pain, you're saying, God, hey, do your work in me. Because obviously, you're not taking it away, so do whatever you want to do. And that's when you embrace it. And then eventually, again, what will give you encouragement is that your pain will eventually lead you to your like destiny where often the things that you learn in the desert will be the very things that gives you the sensitivity to focus where the Lord wants you to focus upon. It could be a hurt from the past or that you currently experience. Kind of like what it talks about in, in Peter, that you know the things that you're being comforted with, you're going to be able to comfort others. And so it becomes a guide for a focal point in your ministry where you're going to have a lot of authority. And so at the end of this continuum of pain, this process, you actually uh, start to discover it's a gift. And um, that's when, uh, I don't know if you remember when you were younger, you probably prayed a prayer, God, I want to make a difference, you know, with my life. And, you know, maybe God said, oh, no, you prayed that prayer because that, that means that you're going to have to go through suffering because I think the thing that connects people to us in the greatest way is probably our pain. It's not going to be our strengths or our accomplishments. So pain actually becomes then platform for power. It becomes a place where God gives you authority, I think, to impact more greatly uh, in ways that we could not imagine. Dave, oftentimes in our culture, it seems we seek to cover up or ignore the pain. But what you're sharing is that the more that we run from our pain and brokenness and uncertainties, the less we're able to really fully step into the life that God has called us to live. Totally. To me, the picture that comes to mind is somewhat like the Wizard of Oz. He's, he's this little guy, but he's projecting this big old picture of power. And, but he's really very small. The incongruity between the small wizard and then what he's projecting, that incongruity, that gap between that, I think causes a lot of stress, workaholism, addictions, because what you're doing is you're choosing to live a life of hypocrisy. And so I think that breeds an anxiety by itself. 
And so I think the more congruent you can become with like your public self of, and your private self and your private self being that you're broken. Uh, but you're not, you're not like just commit, you know, just commiserating there and, and, and being masochistic about it all. But it's, it's just an honesty. Yeah. Uh, this is who I am. I'm, I'm not afraid to demonstrate it because what or, or to, to show it, because I, I think where Satan often works is in the hiddenness of our brokenness and we become paralyzed in it and it forces us not to be our authentic, more authoritative self. And so, um, you know, I, I think about two things when I consider the importance of revealing maybe your scars. You know, I think of Kintsugi art. It's a Japanese art, um, ancient form where when a piece of pottery would break, these artisans decided instead of discarding it, they actually took the pieces of pottery and they put it back together with a golden mixture so that it actually became more valuable after they put it back together with this gold mixture than before it was broken. And I feel that's what it's meant in the scriptures when he says his strength is made perfect in our weaknesses. And it's through like these cracks in our life that his glory shines through. And then the second thing that I think confirms this is even Jesus himself. Because when you think of him in his perfect state, and when we're all with him in heaven, now, he's the only one that's going to bear scars, and he's still perfect. Wow. Yeah, that's beautiful. Both those images are, are, are awesome when it comes to uh, the brokenness that we experience in our lives, right, and, and what that looks like. Um, how can pastors help encourage people, um, and, and how have, have you done this in your ministry, to, to kind of find their unique calling and to, to step into that calling and what that looks like? For their life? Well, I think there's several things I can encourage pastors, having worked with, you know, mega church pastors, small church pastors, even different, you know, multiple denominations that will help. Uh, number one is you almost have to think like a Martian, where God drops you into the planet Earth, and you have no idea about church planning, church builds, church planting. But just realize God told you the mandate, love him and love your neighbor, someone not like you. And then, then go and make disciples of all nations. You know, how would you build leaders? How would you make disciples? Because making disciples is leadership development to me or human development. How would you do that with people who don't know Jesus and people who are hungry if you didn't have any methodology that was given to you? So I think... You have to think this way first, because otherwise you're going to default back to your current way of training, which I believe is not necessarily fully effective. And we can go into that at some point, but I don't know if it's really producing results because our cities aren't necessarily changing. We're not seeing like the revivals that we, that you would normally think you'd see if God's really at work in a city. The second thing is I, I, I'd say that's really important is to consider uh, your assessment process because your assessment process often is going to focus upon identifying a person's spiritual gifts, their personality, and their strength. But it doesn't necessarily look again at their weaknesses or their story deeply um, and helping them to see how it can be turned into power or be a guide for them. But the assessments that we are doing, uh, the outcome for it, I think for most of us pastors, 
I think as you're creating like a process of development is so that you could have them maybe play a role as a volunteer within the, the church system. So the ultimate goal is for them to be a volunteer in the system. And essentially, you know, I just want to encourage pastors to say that's good where everybody needs to do their part as a family member, but also ultimately how are you going to take that assessment so that, and, and allow that to help them figure out how to integrate their faith in their workplace, in their neighborhood with their family. And how would you guide them vocationally to live this out in the real world? I think this is really critical, this assessment. And then maybe the last thing, so I don't get too long, is just consider design principles. As you think about the future, um, a lot of times people, you'll go to seminars, conferences, and you're just looking for the answer. And a lot of times these answers don't work because they're, they're really particular to a given context. Um, so they create a solution that fits that context or that demographic. And I think what God's given us through his word are some very clear design principles on how to develop people so that uh, they can feel free and so that they can feel like they're living out God's destiny for them. And they're not anchored to our institution, but rather they feel resourced and launched by us and loved by us like we like our sons and daughters would as they mature. So what are some of those um, specific uh, designs that, that God has, has given when it comes to, to helping people experience this in their lives? Yeah, a great question. You know, I, I think the natural design um, is Genesis 11, where, and it's not necessarily the, the good thing, but we naturally are given to Genesis 11, which is the building of Babel's. Mm. And it's just like showing how significant we are. And then we put our cross on top with our brand name on it. And so whether this is a company, whether this is a church, I think it's a natural thing for us to, to have ambition, I think, to build. But then what happens is for some of us, you know, we just keep going. And again, so the build of our, 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 our own system becomes the most important thing. And so unknowingly, and again, I don't think it's on purpose maybe initially, but what happens is it becomes a lot about the star pastor or the star music or the, so it's about everything within that box. But again, it's not to diminish the importance of music or speakers or people who are gifted that way. Just saying that it starts to vortex around a vertical and the expanse of that is very limited. It, it has a, the most of it's going up, but it's not going out. And so I think the calling that God originally designed for us, there's four principles to me that, that seem to jump out. I mean, I'm sure there's more that other people can highlight, but two are in Genesis, two are in John. Genesis 1 was, um, he talks about subduing the whole earth and being fruitful. And so that to me really prescribes his design principle of freedom, that he's called us to really design processes where our people feel free and not burned out and anchored by an institution. You know, it's like our children should never feel like we're holding, holding them prison to just do our, the household chores. Our goal is that our children, man, can, we want to help nurture the uniqueness they have and they then go out and crush it in whatever sector that God's called them to. We don't want them to feel weighted down by our own home system. So we want them to feel free 
like they own the whole earth, that, that God's given them dominion over the whole earth, not to be like this authoritarian, but to be a lover, but to act like, hey, you can be free and not feel limited to a box, like Babel. And then Genesis 12, where he says, it's a blessing principle to me, where we're called to receive blessing, so you have the fuel and you experience the love of God, but then he says to bless others. And that to me is when you see someone and you affirm their beauty, and then you give them access to inheritance, um, you know, resources that, that you have. And so instead of just, you know, taking resources from them, it's like we're almost becoming like an incubator venture capital company. Instead of just investing in missionaries to go plant churches, we're actually saying we want you to go plant businesses. We want you to go to start art movements or we're going to invest in your artwork. So we actually start giving and investing in our people. Uh, so we're blessing them. You know, how radical would that be if it really, if we really start to turn our investment towards our, the people God called us to nurture and send them out like VCs do. And then the other principles, people say, well, how in the world can you do that? I mean, there's so many people to bless. And I think this is the problem with a lot of our church growth mindset. I mean, there's a lot of good things, but the, the downside of our church growth mindset, again, is efficiency and just, we just think large. And I don't think most people are given to understanding large or how to build large. You know, mega church is probably less than what 1% um, of people can really do that, maybe leadership. Right. Um, most churches are, a right? So, so most people aren't given to big, but that's the model they're forcing or, not, or they're taking on as the, the model. So to me, the, the way I saw, I think Jesus did in John 5 and John 4 gives the two latter principles. John 5 is basically, you know, Jesus only did what he saw his father doing. You know, so he stepped over some people to heal one. It wasn't that they were unimportant, but he was looking at where was the ripe fruit? Where is the one that God wants me to touch? So that's a lot more artful. That's, and, it's, and actually, to me, it does, it's not going to cause much burnout or stress because I think God will show you who you need to speak to today. And that at least leads us to the understanding that there's a power of one, that one person can change a city. So the design principle of flowing with the Father is John 5, and then John 4 is the principle of knowing, um, where, again, you're thinking of typically, or we think of numbers. When we, If I were to say, hey, there's a village or the city that we got to strategize, how are we going to impact it and, and cause a floor or stir a flourishing in the city where people are spiritually awakened? I imagine we think of crusades, we think of media blitzes, we think of, like, we got to plant a thousand churches, which are all, you know, great stuff. But how did Jesus approach it, who had all the supernatural resources to do similar things to us and even better in real time and, and, and in a tangible way that people could experience? Jesus had all these opportunities to show things immediately to people so that they would all come running to him. How did Jesus approach the village in John 4 was to me really telling of how maybe we could approach it. And that is he talked to one woman, a Samaritan woman on the outskirts, um, who was shocked that Jesus would spend time to, to talk to her, not just teach her. He was asking questions. He got to know her. And in fact, it was that knowledge of her that sparked her to run back to the village 
and then tell the whole village, come and meet this man who told me everything about me, who knows me. Because a lot of men knew her body, but Jesus was the first one that knew her soul. And she never met a man like that. And so to me, that showed and reiterate the power of one that we don't have to sometimes just burn out and think of massive numbers to change a city. But in fact, it could be like in New York with the Clapham group that it's often a group that's small, but dedicated and called by God and committed that can change the whole city. Wow. Those four principles, I think, you know, really speak into it and they really challenge, uh, like you alluded to, they challenge a lot of a lot of maybe the leadership principles that, that we're often inundated with, even in the church. Um, one, one theme that I kind of noticed in those, and, and I've noticed through your ministry as a whole, is this idea of creativity. Mm. You, you really seem to take the time to intentionally appreciate God as creator and then how we reflect that in our lives. Can you speak a little bit to this idea of helping people embrace their creativity uh, in, in the kingdom? Well, number one, you're made in the imago Dei. You're made in the image of God. And so that means you carry his traits. And so his trait is creativity. He created us. He created this amazing planet in the universe. So that the truth is that muscle, that genes like in you, and just acknowledge that. And secondarily, you have creative force in you, which is the Holy Spirit. And he promises to guide and to translate things for us in the comfort. So there's, there's a creative work being done right now in this moment in your body. I think that, I don't know if we acknowledge that because a lot of us just think of like, you know, we're getting older, you know, we're working, but we're not actually thinking that there's new things being created. And that leads me to the third idea is that I think we bought into this philosophy that nothing new is being created. Uh, because we've read in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. And there's no doubt that's in the Bible, um, but that's in the poetic section. It wasn't meant to be like an absolute statement. You know, it was poetry. It was, a, it was imagery. So there's a lot of things that said in the poetic section that um, we don't take as absolute. Like, you know, it says train up a child in the way he should go and Proverbs in the way, and then when he's old, he'll not depart from it. There's a lot of kids that we've trained them up and they departed from it. Um, so it was meant to be like a general statement and that, so, you know, we have to read the Bible according to its genre of literature. So that's the other thing is don't, don't necessarily take that as like an absolute statement because God did new things. He, you know, he created new wineskins. He, his faithfulness, he says, is new every morning. You know, he stopped the sun in the old Testament. That didn't happen before. And so, and, you know, and then he's creating a new man. So, and a new heaven and new earth. So there are things that are being created now and will be created that are entirely new. So that's really important to understand that innovation and newness is occurring right now. And even in our, in our bodies, there are cells that are regenerating. Uh, the other piece of this, I think, is from a very human perspective, because you don't have to be a, a Christian to understand this, is what changed, like, or codified a lot of this understanding of creativity and in in many of us, and most of us, or I could say maybe probably in all of us, because we're, again, made in his image, um, is from a video I saw 
about 10 years ago, I think it was, like the TED video by Sir Ken Robinson. He did a video. Sir Ken Robinson is a macro educator from the UK who studied uh, education, Western education models and how it developed throughout Europe and you know, why it developed the way it did and then how America basically uh, took it on as the, the way you educate children. And, we, and so it's a public education you know, where we developed essentially like manufacturing plants and we identified grades. We, we started segmenting children based upon their age versus like their uniquenesses and stuff. So it was, it was a system just to get kids through. But one thing he said in it, I mean, there's multiple things. I encourage you to look at it. If you know, the listener hasn't seen it yet, um, but it's called Sir Ken Robson changing Ed- educational paradigms. But there's one thing he said, he says, there's a point, a group of people that have, literally creative genius. And he asked the audience, like, who is this group of people that have creative genius? And he says, it was kindergartners. He says, like, 98.6% of kindergartners have creative genius. And then what happens is the question he asked. And I think it's our systems. I think the system really focuses most, mostly upon the math and the sciences. And I think in the church world, we can focus upon just intellectualism or just Bible study. Like Bible study to me is, of course, it's part of our fueling, it's our food, it's a must. But what happens is we define our Christianity simply around um, the mind, um, and then um, we diminish the importance of like the creative component of God, which may often be experiential, and there's a newness, there's a mystery and a risk to it. But especially if we're given to, or we come from chaos, I think there's going to be a gravitational pull just to order. We react to it. And so we just love the black and white. But I think what's going to help everybody for all of us to know is that actually God has given us this creative genius that I think has been diminished uh, in understanding because of the systems that we've lived in both from a church perspective, but also from just a public school education. So what um, have you done specifically at your church and your ministry and, and as you've been um, kind of mentoring other, other pastors? What have you seen mm-hmm. that helps the church move from, from what we have been to a place where this um, creativity can be unleashed? Are there some practical things that the pastors can begin thinking about? Well, it's kind of like I remember hearing Parker Palmer. He says most people don't like uh, choose to do some of these things um, unless he says it's, there's pain involved. He says most people will move in a direction because of pain, and I think he's right. That I don't know if we will choose it naturally unless you got have this illumination. But if you, typically I found people who are mostly in pain, they're willing to look at everything again. Right. And to re-examine, re-examine. So that's, but if you can choose, I would say and you have that energy and you're feeling it and maybe you haven't gone through pain. That's even better because you don't have to experience pain to move into a space of creativity. But I would say that what would help is number one, knowing in your mind, because it's a way of life is that I am creative. You have to say that to yourself declare it. I am creative because I'm made in the image of God. And he's, and I'm in a season that literally is like in a renaissance moment. It's like the dark ages, I think it feels like, um, spiritually. Well, this is a moment that God can shine. So he wants us to create new wineskins. 
And then with that mindset, I would move forward into then asking the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and eyes and energy to see what he's, he's doing. And um, so practically speaking, what that means for me is I, I tell pastors and leaders, you need to go and immerse yourself into a culture that's very different than you. And this is really predicated on the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, where it says, love God, love your neighbor. And the neighbor to me is defined as someone not like you. When he was asked, like, who's my neighbor, he told a good Samaritan story. And I think that is really powerful because it's when you're interacting with a neighbor that's not like you, the least of these to you, the unforgivable one possibly, or the most unlikely for you to be friends with, that's when you actually discover Jesus. Because the loving God, loving your neighbor, is actually to me symbiotic. It's the same coin but different sides. And so what happens is when you start to actually immerse yourself into a culture that's dissonant or different than you, I think you actually start to understand who God is because he's the ultimate other to us sometimes as human beings. He's foreign to us. So the more you get to know these others, the more creativity will spark. This has been proven in a book that's a, it's not a Christian book. It's a book called Medici Effect by Franz Johansson. I think he's a professor from one of the Ivy League schools, but it was written a few years ago. But essentially his, his understanding when he looked at the, the Renaissance movement, it was really fueled, they said, in part by a very wealthy family, the Medici family. And what they did is they, they invested in, in multiple sectors of society, the arts, the sciences, um, mathematics, the you know, spiritual. But they invested in all these and brought those different domain leaders together and what they said that that did was it caused a clashing of cultures that then sparked innovation. So I, I tell leaders what, what you have to do is then step out of your homogeneous setting um, and then move into settings where you're literally there as a listener, a learner, and trying to feel the culture. And what happens is I think it actually physically it starts sparking uh, uh, the neurons in your brain, but also physically there's an aliveness that happens because you're placed in a very different posture of listening and learning that actually will move you into innovation. Wow. So that's really key as, as we're looking at our, our churches and looking at ourselves and it kind of our journey with God as ministry leaders and how he's speaking into our lives. And, and like you said, allowing ourselves to, to really seek the Holy Spirit in the midst of all this and allow God to to pull out of us, um, even in the midst of, of, like you said, that the pain and the desert experiences. It's often in those places where the Spirit is most at work in our lives to pull out of us um, those things that God really longs for us to step into. So um, that, that's powerful encouragement um, for, for people, I think, in every stage of ministry, in every stage of life, to continuously you know, not get comfortable and not kind of get in a rut, but continuously be open to the, the new things, if you, as you've said, uh, the new creation that God is, is doing in our lives in an ongoing basis, and to be aware of that and, and looking for that even. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Awesome, brother. Well, Dave, I certainly appreciate you taking the time to be with us and, and for what you've shared. Um, I, I, I know that this is great encouragement to, to many of our pastors and uh, our listeners 
And if people are kind of wrestling through some of these things, I can, again, I can only imagine there's some pastors out there who are, who have been wrestling with some of the tensions that, that you experienced in, in looking at where God is leading their ministry and uh, their church. Um, what are some ways that, that they can learn some more, dig a little more deeply into this, um, some ways that they might be able to get uh, in touch with you or some of the, the, the resources and the books that I know that you've provided? Well, you can find me through the, no, the normal social media expressions, you know, the Instagram, Facebook, or you know, Twitter. Um, in terms of, like, um, specific resources that are not daily, like this, the this, this social media, um, I would say the first primer to me would be read... I wrote, I wrote a book called Monkey and the Fish, which was really my processing when I was in Bangkok that helped me to move to where I am today. And um, so I think it talks about third culture leadership and about being a liquid leader. Monkey and the Fish is a parable, um, an Eastern parable. But I think it'd be really helpful where people start to see where it all came from um, in terms of what I talked about today. And then in the next book that may be helpful where I talk about, I talk about leadership itself, or I speak to the leader in a book called Zealot and defining the gravity of normality. And it's, uh, it's the mind and movements of a leader. I w- when I wrote it, I was thinking about my children and the next generation the millennials and the Z generation. So I, I, I think that may be helpful. And the most recent book I finished was called Small Cloud Rising. And these are all on Amazon and small cloud rising is basically the design principles, um, the, the nomenclature, the language of what we talked about today, the design principles for a flourishing movement of what we know as the church. And um, I think that'd be helpful. In terms of like training, I, I launched or we've relaunched a, a, a group called Zealots at zealots.org, X-E-A. LOTS.org. So if you want some of the training, hands-on stuff, take a look at zealots.org, X-E-A-L-O-T-S.org. Awesome, brother. Well, I certainly appreciate um, all that you've done to contribute to the kingdom and and to challenge us in in our thinking and uh, how we approach, um, really, as you've said, transforming our communities and our cities uh, in in a way that, that ultimately glorifies God. So uh, these resources, incidentally, for our listeners, we'll have all of these resources and links to them in the show notes um, for this podcast at churchleaders.com. So if you're looking for those, we encourage you to to check that out, and we'll provide all these links um, so that you have them. Well, Dave, brother, uh, again, I just appreciate you, all that you're doing for the kingdom. I appreciate you taking the time to, to be with us and to, to share with our listeners today. Uh, we appreciate all you're doing. God bless you, brother. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. Every week, as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church of Leaders podcast, and if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they can benefit uh, from these interviews as well. And again, we thank you in advance. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com, or you can connect with me on Twitter. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well.
You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.